Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 10, Edie Demas, The Sphere of Cultural Responsibility, Act 1, recorded July 28, 2017, at the Jacob Burns Film Center in Pleasantville, New York. Screaming about irrevocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie but they don't apply to people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives aloud are the only roads you can see Just remember who walls were built to fall For people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Hey, hey, T.A. with CJB listeners I have a couple of really exciting announcements to make. First, Teaching Artists Guild. Have you heard of Teaching Artists Guild? Well, people like to call them TAG, but Teaching Artists Guild is now a proud partner of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. Teaching Artists Guild is a national network of teaching artists and arts education leaders. And since 2013, Teaching Artists Guild, or like I said, TAG, has provided resources and communication about our growing field through their website, databases, and quarterly magazine. They feature a pay rate calculator for teaching artists and are launching an interactive map of the field, which is coming out very soon. They even offer dental and vision discounts around the U.S. This is a thrilling new adventure with an organization that I respect and admire. You can look forward to hearing more about TAG and our partnership from uh, from their staff on this podcast, as well as um, other sort of um, little quips and things that I'll talk about along the way. So visit TAG at teachingartistsguild.org to learn more. The other announcement that I have is that it actually I announced it before in our our last episode series. I talked about that on Friday, September 14th at uh, 6.30, there will be the first ever live taping of this podcast. We are having a roundtable discussion in partnership with the New York City Arts and Education Roundtable. This event actually is a part of the International Teaching Artists Conference, which happens every other year. And this is the fourth uh, biannual conference since it started. Uh, I'm extremely proud to be a part of this uh, larger, more global event that's happening in our great city. Um, And guests from this podcast will join me to reflect on big questions that are coming out of that conference and how they apply to the New York City Arts and arts education community and beyond. So visit uh, 
this this is a free event. So to RSVP, you can either go to Teaching Artistry uh, with Courtney J. Body on Facebook and you can find uh, and navigate sort of towards the RSVP there. Or you can go to the Roundtable re- website and under events. And that website is nycaieroundtable.org backslash events. That's a lot. That's a lot. But I have more. <laughs> this is not announcements, but this is more about my my thinking. And this podcast is a growing part of, of how I'm viewing the world and how I see or view, you know, different things like media. Um, so recently I saw Nanette by Hannah Gadsby and she's a comedian, Australian comedian. This is a, a special that was on Netflix and it is incredibly powerful. I highly recommend watching it. It's, it's like nothing I've ever seen from a comedian at least. Um, well, Hannah says that your story has value and that really resonated with me. Also, I recently learned that Oprah has a podcast very similar to this where she's interviewing um, well-known artists and that she says that everyone has a story that we can all learn from. And that's the way I've been thinking about this podcast and realizing the power of telling your story and listening to other stories. And this podcast is, is built to celebrate and to advocate for artists who I think you should know. And hearing their stories should be inspiring and interesting and perhaps could have some resonance in your life and potentially the life of others that you touch. So I hope that you've been enjoying this journey so far. Um, I know I have. And there's much, much more in store for us. So today's guest is Edie Demas. Many of us, many of us have that person, that person in our lives that you know, when you look back on when and how you met and how they've been um, engaging in your life, you realize that they just might have changed the very course of your life. That sounds really like heavy, I guess. But for me, that was Edie. She is spectacularly intelligent and she is extremely passionate about arts and education and the reason why I say that she has changed the course of my life is because she hired me uh, in an entry-level position in 2003 at the New Victory Theater. And that was uh, definitely the starting point of where I've gotten to here. Uh, she likely is, well, no, she without a doubt has been one of the best supervisors I've ever had, a mentor, a friend. She's thoughtful, intelligent, clear supportive and I could go on and on and on me and Ben uh, teaching artistry's producer went to Pleasantville New York to learn more about her journey growing up and through the beginnings of her career have a great time listening to Edie Demas the sphere of cultural responsibility act one so hi, Edie. Hi, Courtney. <laughs> um, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Same here. Yeah. Um, well, uh, let's just talk about what we just experienced, actually. Can you explain where we are? Sure. We're uh, here in Pleasantville, New York, at the Jacob Burns Film Center's Media Arts Lab. It's a mouthful. Mm. Um, 
and we just had the um, lucky, uh, happy accident of of uh, you guys being up here for the podcast to, uh, at the same time as we're screening some newly minted student work. And what you just saw is a short film documentary project by some students that are part of a summer project uh, in, that's based in Chappaqua, where they come up in, from the Bronx and spend Monday through Friday in a summer school setting up here in Westchester. And as part of their academic and enrichment work, they spend every Friday here at the Jacob Burns working on a, a film or media project. And so this year, the, the projects were all documentary-based, and the students were asked to create a short piece looking at a social issue of their time mm-hmm. that's meaningful to them. So the piece that we just watched was a piece by, I think it was four or five um, high school filmmakers looking at the subject of of empathy and why we need it now more than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I, uh, it was, today was my first time seeing it too, and I found it really compelling and um, provocative and made me think how absolutely it cr- critical it is for young voices to be heard at this time. Mm-hmm. Always, mm-hmm. but it feels especially potent. Yeah. and important now um I, I i would agree with you and the for me i listening to the young people speak uh they were saying things that i've i have thought they're they literally said some things that i've said on this podcast wow <laughs> yeah um and I, I that's something that i've been um searching after actually is this idea of empathy not only in the programs that i run and how we work with young people but in uh, the world, the kind of conversations that I'm having with people that I know and love that have differing opinions from, uh, from me in terms of politics and just how, uh, just life in general. And as, um, there was one young lady who's speaking uh, and as she was talking, I was thinking about those conversations that somebody was saying something about how, you know, not only are you needing to try and figure out how, maybe it was the young man. Anyway, uh, the, you know, people who, what kind of experiences they were having in their own lives and in their own neighborhoods, but also how do you represent your neighborhood? And is your experience the only kind of experience, which is not true. Everybody has different experiences, right? Right. Right. Um, But how do you, how do you understand what somebody else's life is? If you don't at least cross those boundaries, get out Mm -hmm. of your own little silo. Um, and the fact that these young people are coming here into a, a neighborhood, Pleasantville, is, is I would, how would you classify it in terms of um, income levels? Well, well, it's interesting because the um, Pleasantville is right next door to Chappaqua, which is the home of this project, mm. and it's a it's a um, a program that's been in existence almost fifty years. Next summer will be fifty years, um, but Chappaqua and Pleasantville are very different. Um, towns mm. in the in the um, makeup of Westchester, and of mm. course, it, Pleasantville is changing as 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 every place is changing. But um, so, but they're you know um, completely different uh, socioeconomic and l- even just geographic landscape, visually very different from from the South Bronx, where most of these kids mm-hmm. have come up from. So. Um, 
it's it's really interesting to think about that experience to put yourself in their shoes to mm-hmm. try to use the powers of empathy to think about what that four weeks in the summer is like mm-hmm. and the questions it raises about the way the vast differences that exist in in how people live yeah um what they have access to what they feel they're entitled to it just and i thought what was so beautiful about the piece we just saw is the level of um sophistication um and intention that that they put into crafting their short film Mm -hmm. um it was thoughtful it took its time it had news footage cut in but I, but the the first person accounts were were so potent with the news footage as a backdrop, and yeah. I thought they were so skilled at putting that together without being um, sort of this is the message kind yeah. of you know. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. I was thinking literally exactly the same thing about the um, the first person account and the, this interspersing of of news footage and other uh, media within and even the music or the the there I thought people were whispering but mm-hmm. it was the song oh that's right and yeah. I I thought oh that's really that's also like really meta mm-hmm. that you know there's all this sort of like whispering that's happening behind closed doors or in front of your face or how ha- you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. like I just thought that that also was a, a very interesting choice yeah yeah um, but I agree I mean this is this is a program that the the they've been doing only on Fridays. So in right. four four Fridays, four Fridays, they created that five minute piece, and mm-hmm. um and yeah, I think it's going to stick with me for a while. Yeah, so. me too. And I I also you know um was just a great reminder, which I think um all of us need, and even those of us that work in education or arts education are familiar with young people. You, it, it's still a great reminder of just how smart and capable and thrilling and delightful they are mm-hmm. and how um how powerful they are when uh, when given the tools and the opportunity and the nurturing mentorship to express those ideas mm-hmm. um and for me it was also just really nice to look at a piece of documentary by young people um that wrestles with some big issues and some uncomfortable questions because so often and as you know so much of my experience is in theater we're asking young people to do that through a fictional lens Mm -hmm. and it's been part of my learning here since coming to the Jacob Burns about how powerful first person documentary uh, storytelling can be Mm -hmm. and how there is a, a place for that and that there is um care and support um and ways into telling those stories that are still um, have safety nets and all of that built around them, that you don't always need to go at a difficult topic through a fictional lens. Mm. Although that's, I mean, not that no. there's anything wrong right. with that, but, but it's but fun ex- to experience expanding. another way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about your your role here um, and, and what ha- what experience have you had in the past with film? You know, what's your background? Sure. So um, I'm the executive director of the Jacob Burns Film Center. I've been here since May of 2014, so just over three years now. What? I know. It's been that long. I know. It's wow. <laughs> it's crazy. It's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so my role here is, you know, 
all the kind of arts management, cu cultural administration that you expect at, at, at any um, complex, multifaceted <laughs> cultural organization. We, the, the Burns is on a uh, campus in Pleasantville. We have three buildings, so um, a five-screen film center, which also includes an art gallery space, the Media Arts Lab, where we are now, which has a lot of um, post-production facilities, classroom space is, is available to the uh, education the community, has uh, classes for everyone from 4 to 94, as we like to say, um, and also has artist residencies, filmmaker fellowships, um, and a, ho a whole range of, of other kinds of activity that supports filmmakers as well. Mm -hmm. And next door to the lab is a three-bedroom house. So we also have a residency program um, for filmmakers and other people working in film. We've had composers working here in this recording studio, um, uh, scoring projects and, and teaching master classes on composing for film and music for film. So big, big wide range. And, and the house, is uh, its particular focus is on, has been, on international filmmakers. So we have a real dedication to cultural exchange and dialogue, mm -hmm. and that house really helps make a lot of that possible so that we'd, we are not just screening films from another country, but we can have filmmakers from other countries here in residence. Um, it's just a very rich experience. And then um, lately we've been experimenting and piloting sort of local residencies. So we've had shorter term residencies with filmmakers from from the immediate area, primarily the city who, you know, it's just like a, a break to come up here to really intensely focus on a project, to get to know another film community, mm -hmm. to screen your work outside of the city and see what that, what the audience reaction is like there, to have different kinds of conversations. Sometimes they teach master classes or work with our um camp program or do a, say a skill building session with our faculty so there's a whole range of of ways that those residents give back to the organization that's great yeah wow um and uh you have a family <laughs> i do and um i want i i want to get to that actually but okay. I, I let's start let's go back let's okay. go down to when you were a kid sure um where did you grow up and and um how are the arts uh present in your life i grew up in washington dc and um and then in the in a suburb of of dc bethesda maryland and primarily growing up my strongest memories um are of going to the smithsonian's and that was the way the arts were constantly mm -hmm. present. O other ways too, but that that was the heartbeat or the spine of that kind of engagement and activity. Um, so much so that I remember coming on a field trip in ninth grade to New York City, and we went into the to the Metropolitan Museum, and there was an admissions desk. And I remember kind of being shocked and outraged, as only like a teenager can be, <laughs> that people had to pay to go to museums. They should be free, like mm -hmm. the Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something about that early experience that stayed with me and has remained with me since then. Um, and I... Um, 
proudly bring my own kids to the Smithsonian whenever we're back in D.C. because I want them to have that sense of not just access but ownership that mm-hmm. these institutions belong to them, um, exist for them. And um, and so I think that uh, that has played a role in my clearly a role in my professional life and continues now to play a role in my parenting life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I, I would say, is pivotal. I'll also share that um, later on, as a high school sophomore, I ended up in a school that was just a bad fit for me for a number of reasons. And I left um, after the uh, holiday winter holiday break and ended up in a new school that was just forming and but in and my mother was one of the founders of it but in its formation the arts were always a part of and seen as um, central to the philosophy of the school Mm -hmm. and so I arrived there after being really unhappy for a long long time and um, got into the musical which was Godspell And it just sort of turned around my whole idea about high school and me and what I wanted to do and what, uh, you know, what I what my passions and interests and curiosities were. And so that was another formative experience, because up till that, I was arguing as hard as I could with my parents that I could just should just take the high school equivalency exam and and get out of school. Um, So anyway, we found another way through Godspell. <laughs> ah, yes, Godspell. I, I was in a similar way. I, freshman year in high school, I just, something wasn't clicking, and I was sort of out of it. And the more I got involved with things, the more I got a little bit like, oh, school is not so bad. Um, and it started, it all started with sports, actually. Mm-hmm. I went to go visit or see one of my friends in a field hockey game and was sort of like, what is this? Right. And, uh oh you need a manager oh I can take score I can hold that bag that's fine and then by by my senior year I was the varsity goalie Uh, (laughs) um, but also for in terms of theater I had auditioned for a show did not get in and sort of was jaded by that and then by uh, junior year um, academically I didn't do great but I was so involved I was the president of clubs and I was in sports every single season and then I auditioned for hair Ooh. which was a student-run production and that really turned me around for, I think to where I got to in terms of college mm-hmm. but um, yeah high school is a place where you can get lost oh yeah and and I think it's those those moments where you find your niche which every, you know, your parents are telling you, your teach people, your grown-ups in your life are telling mm-hmm. you that. But until you feel it, 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 it just sounds, you know, like empty words. Um, but clearly, whether, you know, whatever that entry point is to hang on to something, mm-hmm. it, it, whether it's sports or, or a show or whatever, art, whatever it mm-hmm. is. Um, yeah, I, I started to feel like I mattered. And it mattered if I showed up or not. Um, made a difference yeah. and I had a community all the all those things that we and a contribution to make mm-hmm. all those things that we continue to work towards in our professional work um, and so those were both that you know they were just really foundational experiences and and I think because of the 
a connection that because my parents took me to see stuff we we you know D, the the cultural activity of DC was part of our regular lives then when i became a teenager and could drive or had friends who could drive and stuff like that we continued to you know do stuff mm -hmm. whether it was music or art museums or whatever it was it was an, another amazing thing for a teenager to you know to run in and and look at a painting and leave and have it not cost you anything is kind of an amazing thing and mm -hmm. to not be intimidated by the um you know the marble columns or the big stairs or the guards at the front or any of those things mm -hmm. around that make an institution supposedly an institution um there's a great sense of um, courage and um, confidence that having that s feeling like you belong there mm -hmm. um, instills in people. And I think somehow I knew that instinctively. And so I wanted to figure out how to be part of making that courage and confidence and sense of belonging and ownership, the mm -hmm. right to participate in cultural activity, part of every kid's life. And so I, I certainly at the time in college and out of college, I wouldn't have articulated it that way. Mm. But looking back, I know that that's there was something that was drawing me towards that, trying to realize that core value mm -hmm. in my work. Um, and so where did you go to college? I went to the University of Richmond. Mm -hmm. And um, I majored in English and minored in theater and got um, because in the state of Virginia at the time you couldn't get certified in theater arts and I knew I wanted to teach and I wanted to study education and somehow fit all these things together mm -hmm. and so I and I and I and I loved English and English literature was excited to do that too so I got certified to teach high school English with a endorsement in theater arts and and so after college, you, did you start teaching in the classroom? Or no, or? I went back to D.C. and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do because I had, you know, I had really enjoyed my classroom teaching, but I also found it, um, my student teaching, I found it a, a, a little bit limiting. And I had done the most exciting thing that I, or the biggest discovery for me in my student teaching was... Um, <laughs> I was working with a so-called remedial 10th grade English class, and it had about, I loved it because it was small. It had like 10 or 12 kids in it, and, um, and, I, and I also loved it because my, the teacher, the mentor teacher I was assigned to, mm -hmm. he was kind of over that group of kids, and he didn't show up, and I could do whatever I wanted. <laughs> so I had kind of free reign. Mm -hmm. And um, the, but it was also, as you might imagine, super challenging trying to figure out what to do mm -hmm. and what they need, where they needed to be by the end of the year and what my responsibilities were in that journey. Um, but I ended up for my placement time there have, having to teach uh, the novel Robinson Crusoe or Treasure Island. Mm. Is that what? Yeah. yeah. Um, because. <laughs> It was the, for two reasons, it was the only book that satisfied two criteria. There were enough copies for everyone in the class, and it was the only book that there were enough copies of that um, multiple kids in the class hadn't read before in times when they'd failed 10th grade English. 
Oh, okay. So, so a fresh start. <laughs> fresh start. <laughs> and enough copies. Yeah. Okay. And um, it was super challenging. It's not an easy book. It happened to be a paperback edition with teeny tiny print. Mm. So for kids who found reading challenging, it just on the face of it, they were like, no way. You know, it had a particularly kind of silly cover even that was sort of off-putting. So anyway, there was, and so I was trying to figure out what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Um, so we started off doing sort of small group reading and um, that helped or, re or I would read aloud which I loved doing and so that was sort of performative so that was interesting and they really responded to that and then I would have them read aloud to each other by the and when we got to a place where that wasn't scary for kids who had a hard time reading or not so scary um, and then they would do things like I'd assign pages to kids as homework to read and then they'd have to teach it back so all these things so that they were engaged in the book but they didn't have to read the whole thing all the time on their own mm -hmm. right and so then I thought well god how could I activate this even more again I, I probably didn't think that verb in my head but what else can I do what else mm -hmm. can I do that because mm -hmm. the tricks were starting to wear thin and I gave them the assignment because their small groups were working. I gave them the assignment that they were going to have to <clears throat> make a commercial for a new resort inspired by the book. And so what they had to do was plan the resort, draw a map, and, and there were things they had to prove to me that they knew about the book. So they had to have a certain number of elements of the book included in the resort or something like that. And then they had to use... <clears throat> language from the book they had to justify their choices in the text proved to me that it was of the book mm -hmm. so so yeah they made they built they imagined these resorts and then they had to write a script for a commercial and we had a video camera it was early days of home video mm -hmm. the school had a camera and we filmed their commercials as their final project and I think probably they each had to write something, too. Um, and it was, I didn't know it at the time, but I had sort of stumbled into all these process drama and theater and education techniques mm -hmm. and ideas about ways of working and ways of activating story and comprehension. And so I knew coming out of that, student teaching experience that I wanted to work differently so I looked for other jobs and I, I couldn't I didn't know the term teaching artist I don't know if it had been coined yet even at that oh. time mm. and I did some work uh, some I took some classes at Living Stage in Washington DC and that was really formative and I got a job at the YMCA running after-school programs and um, they asked me to put a creative drama sequence together, so I did that. I used a lot of viola spolin, and just sort of started figuring out some stuff and what, what interested me and mm -hmm. what was successful. And then I wasn't making enough money, and I got a job as a um, preschool teacher. And that... I'd spent a year in a, at a preschool, and, and so I was doing that uh, in the mornings, 
And in the late afternoons, I would go the Y and work on this creative drama and other youth enrichment programs. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that year really confirmed for me but that between the creative play in early childhood and the drama and theater work in the after-school programs, that there was one, this was more powerful than even I sort of instinctively knew, having been in Godspell at an important moment. And two, I needed to learn more, and I needed to be around people who thought like me. Mm -hmm. So I found the program at NYU in educational theater, and I applied and got in, and I went to New York. Um, so just to, to let you, I, I feel like we've had this conversation before, but I was uh, similarly, like by the time I graduated college, I I had a host of different kinds of jobs. And in one way or another, I was either working with kids or when I wasn't working with kids and or theater, I was I was sort of just doing the job and it, right. none of it was, you know, fulfilling. Didn't sort of land. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so by the time I um, ended up working at Stage Door Manor, for two summers in between I went to Atlanta and one of my friends was working in a daycare center but in a universal pre-k room right and I was sort of like oh this is fun kids are fun <laughs> I forgot that kids are fun little ones are super fun and so I ended up being an assistant and then um the following year or I went to a new site in the following year um the summer program uh, whoever was running that had had resigned mm -hmm. or moved on or something and um, so they sort of asked you know do you want to do this and once I realized that I wasn't having to do lesson plans because I didn't have that experience I didn't really know that I was just sort of taking somebody else's work and implementing a piece of it right um, and again the word even implement I didn't have it <laughs> in my vernacular at the time but anyway being able to plan out and schedule really was something I understood and the fact that it wasn't lessons but activities and field mm -hmm. trips I was about it and each week had a theme and everything I was able to you know handpick my staff but I realized that even the activities that I was choosing while I wanted there to be, you know, this activation, I was doing the same thing when we were reading books. We were, you know, trying things out or I would, you know, what, what does the clouds feel like if that, you know, whatever the thing was. Uh, and we were doing dances, but it, it st still felt like I was at a, at a limit. Mm -hmm. I was limited. And that's when I had applied for uh, the same program. So I just feel like that's an, I didn't, I don't know if I knew that we were, you know, it's how close are, yeah, junctures, where yeah. people find it for you or, that, or yeah. educational theater and knowing that maybe a classroom, being a classroom teacher is not quite the thing, mm -hmm. but that theater and working with young people and providing an avenue for expression is. Mm -hmm. um, so what was your experience like? Because I, I, I went to school in the, in the aughts. Um, in the early, uh, so I was there from 2001 to 2003. I was there, let's see, much earlier. Um, <laughs> I started in the fall of 89 and I completed my master's. No, sorry. I started in the summer, of course, it, um, with study, the study abroad program. Mm -hmm. And, um, at that time, that was, I was in the last, I didn't know it at the time, but in the last summer of <clears throat> the study abroad course as it had existed in its original founding form, which was a partnership with Breton College. There was a much more rigorous or uh, an, an intentional kind of, not, not that the other program isn't rigorous, but there was a much more of a 
through line and and grounding that's the word in theater history mm-hmm. so it was a three-year summer program and each year looked at a different period of of theater history i see i see and um and and and, and you performed at the end of the summer in a play from the time that you were studying so how long was the program? The eight, of- six or eight weeks. I oh, can't remember. Yeah. And wow. you had to do all of it. There wasn't a, like a part A and a part B. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you signed up, you were signing up for each year. Is that what you mean? Uh, you didn't have to, but the sort of the implication was mm-hmm. that because mm-hmm. you could do your master's. I'm pretty sure at that time, just in three sum- study abroad summers. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's still the case. Um, I don't know if it's three, but I think yeah. you can just go, many people just go to the summers and right. just do the summer abroad. Right, but. right. So, yeah, so it was very different um, and and not better or worse, just different. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, you know, because it was part with this Breton Hall was a piece of it that was you would you started off with a week or t- week and a half in London and you saw a whole bunch of stuff and you went to school. So that that piece is still, I think, a version mm-hmm. of that a, in the excuse me, in the program. And then you were up at Breton Hall College in Sheffield for the rest of the summer with a few field trips from there. Mm-hmm. And so this was your, so that study abroad program was your first step into the master's degree. Yes. And I, I'm just trying to like wrap my head around what what's going on through your brain when you, you're, A, you're going to NYU. Um, you were, so you were originally in D.C. Mm-hmm. when you applied, right? So you're going to NYU, but actually, no, I'm going to London. I'm well, going I, to you know, I, I, I had been in London for my junior year of college. Okay. I'd done a semester abroad and I was really dying to get back there. And so part of my attraction to the NYU program initially was I knew they had this really cool study abroad program I wanted to go back to the UK mm-hmm. so so that was a piece of it um, and I also was drawn to it because as I mentioned I'd stu- I had my major had been English and I really wanted more theater I was ready I needed to know more <clears throat> so the the course offerings really appealed to me both in the summer and and generally mm-hmm. and um yeah, it was just really exciting. I mean, that's all, all I can say. So I went, did the study abroad, then went back to D.C., got my stuff, and then moved into one of the graduate dorms at NYU. And at the time, my younger sister was an undergrad at FIT. So I felt like I had, I knew, you know, had some connections to New York. But mostly I just was all, you know, just plunged into NYU, the Washington Square campus, got involved right away in their productions. Mm-hmm. Um, and just sort of, it just took hold. And very, very early on, I got a graduate assistantship, which I think don't exist anymore, at Mm. the creative arts team. So I had those, again, I keep using these same words, but that was like the second wave of pivotal, core, transformative experiences. Mm -hmm. So I had the study abroad, which was great, came back, started at NYU, taking classes at night and working at cat during the day and it was like oh my god oh my god one people don't think i'm crazy for wanting to put theater and education together and two even more than that they understand what i'm talking about and three they have so there's so much for me to soak up um excuse me and the interesting thing was i got the assistantship 
Um, but it wasn't a programmatic one. It was an arts management assistantship. I worked for the managing director. So as you and I have talked about many times over the years and uh, of our friendship, mm-hmm. um, right away, I hadn't actually put this all together till now, but right away I was also looking at arts administration. So, so the three things that have been part of my life ever since Mm -hmm. started there Mm -hmm. at NYU Mm -hmm. between the program and the creative arts team. So my, that the idea of arts admin, arts management, education and, and theater or the whatever art form being entwined, that's continued to just to be how I've been able to work and make a life by combining all three of those Mm -hmm. things. So I actually auditioned to be a teaching artist for creative arts team. I did not get hired, but that's okay. I'm not bitter. <laughs> uh, I, I still didn't really know what a teaching artist was even as I was auditioning. But mm. um, And at that time, were they, did they still call them actor teachers? Yes. Because they've yes. been very deliberate You're about right. terminology. Mm-hmm. And that's a, U, that's a Boal and a UK term. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, they did call them actor teachers and... Um, what I liked about the experience is that it really uh, was a, an audition. So we came in and the fir- it was a, the first round was uh, a workshop led by people who worked there. I can't remember anybody at this point, but um, I just really enjoyed myself and felt like I was just playing and mm-hmm. thought, wow, that even if I don't get hired, that was amazing. And I did get a call back and we had to, to we had to lead something, um, but I don't think it was a full act. It wasn't a full lesson plan, but we definitely had to, to they gave us some material in the moment and we created something and mm-hmm. then um, went from there. And there's a lot of improv is what I remember. Um, but that experience was really, really meaningful to me. Um, as a, And that was before I started the program. So I w- had just come back um, or moved back from, from Atlanta and um, was sort of gearing up to going mm-hmm. to school and so this was over the summer and um was hopeful but I still was uh not I don't even think I was as experienced as, as you were when you went to, to grad school so I didn't have any terminology I didn't have any sort of real understanding but I was going on instinct a lot right, of instinct right right um so 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 I don't know if I knew that you were involved with creative arts team but I didn't realize that you worked there I did and I was there um the same time as Russell Granite mm-hmm. and um, Evie Hansopoulos and um, and that you know the and many others, but those those two we, the uh, we were we were all particularly close over those years, and continue to be, mm-hmm. and that um, you know it's interesting to think about that time at NYU when there was um, so much going on between the program and creative arts team and, and there and there were all these, you know, the opportunity to have a graduate assistantship and tuition remission and then eventually a teaching fellowship there, those, I mean, that was, again, it was life-changing. Um, and, you know, in, in the many years since that time, the whole structure of all of that has had to change and there have been, you know, union battles and all the other things that have happened mm-hmm. around those programs, mm-hmm. which is a shame. But, um, you know, you look at the three of us just as three examples. And, you know, Evie is the executive director at Global Kids doing just amazing 
um, tr- again, transformational work, change-making work. And, and Russell is at Lincoln Center doing the, the same kind of thing, and, and I'm here. And it's just it's amazing the incubator of that time and the opportunities um, that both the academics and the work experience provided us and, um, and how they informed each other. That was really, um, you know, amazing. And, and I feel so fortunate that I was able to have that, op- mm-hmm. those opportunities. And really, the, um, that first year of my master's, so I finished the master's in three semesters. Oh, um, and then was like, oh, God, it, it's not done. I'm not done yet. <laughs> and was um, and, and during that time, the study abroad program changed, shifted models, mm-hmm. and went into being much more focused on process drama and theater and education. And those were the things that I really wanted to know more about. Mm-hmm. And so I did um, that next summer semester. Actually, Evie was on that summer with me. And um, at the end of that summer, the program invited me to become a teaching fellow. And so that was how I then went on the doctoral path. I see. Okay. So let's just still stay in the in the grads uh, zone. Zone. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I have so many questions around... Uh, not only the relationships and the and the work that you were doing, but about um, uh, Nancy and, and Lowell Swartzell and, mm-hmm. and what your relationship was, was like with them and, and what, um, you know, I know that you guys are pretty close. So I was just curious how, how that relationship uh, grew. Um, and, and, you know, the, I talk a lot on, on this about, mentorship and mm-hmm. who so I, I feel like that but I, I don't want to make any assumptions no of, um, um yeah well for sure I mean I, I was definitely close to both of them and, and think of them both as hugely influential but I would say Nancy was the real mentor to mm-hmm. me of mm-hmm. the two of them um and you know it's this thing happened on that first study abroad where um I don't know what it was, but she saw something in me, and um, and I am, you know, it's that mysterious kind of, kind of chemistry, I guess, or something. I don't, I don't really know, mm-hmm. but um, you know, it was because of her that I got the assistantship at CAT. She made it happen. She connected me when there was a need, mm-hmm. and um, and I. I guess she, did she direct? No, I don't think so. Uh, I, I started auditioning for the Ed Theater shows and getting involved in, you know, like I just, I, by that time, I would decide if I'm going to be here, I'm going to be all in. Mm-hmm. So I was working at CAT and I was volunteering for every opportunity that came by. And I think Nancy was for sure the study abroad program director at that point, but I can't remember if she was the overall program director, if that was still Lowell then. I'm not quite sure, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. It, it just developed from there and, and I kept volunteering for stuff and she would give me more to do. And, um, I got really interested. The way we really got close was I want, I, I volunteered to help write the, um, 
study guides for the ed theater productions mm -hmm. for the schools that came to them. And, you know, the, those are my, not just my experiences, but that's where I had all those famous red pen that everybody talks about with Nancy in terms of her editing. But mm -hmm. she made me such a much better, not just writer, certainly a better writer, but a better thinker um, about the work. And, you know, I think I've told you before her classic thing. There were two things always she would say. And again, this is sort of a Nancy cliche, but she would say to people when they were writing their lesson plans, where's the drama? It's a drama. But for me, what she kept saying continuously, and maybe to others, was um, Edie, drama can't save the world. Tone it down. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, and I think about that yeah. all the time, mm. you know, when I'm writing a grant or thinking about a new program, you know, we're all about impact, 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 impact. How do we show impact? And, you know, you got to be real about it mm -hmm. and not too grandiose and not too noble. Um, the savior complex. Not. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, and it for me, it started with Nancy and that red flare. <laughs> <laughs> um, she was quite a character. Yes. Um, so she, she, uh, I went on the last, the, the study abroad program, which was the last one that she did. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was my advisor. And so every morning I would be in her kitchen, uh, in the drinking residence, tea and drinking tea and, um, she was smoking cigarettes every once in a while. I went and yeah. borrowed one. Um, and she said always to me, where's the drama? What are you doing? What is this? Yeah. Um, and art, like, what are you getting out of this? Where's what's happening here for you? And because she knew that I felt a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and she just, she just like zoned in on that. Like, you're always feeling, I see you. You're always making very sentimental choices. <laughs> <laughs> like, but yeah, is that yeah. always that, is that wrong? Um, but she, she, yeah, she just. I feel like she did. She sort of took people under her wing. And what, what, what was? How would you describe her um, attitude and her tone and her way, like her way of operating in the world? Well, she was tough. Mm. I mean, she was tough. When I made the decision after I'd been through three years of um, of doctoral fellowship was trying to figure out what I was going to write my dissertation on, had passed my exams. Um, that was when I hit another, the next big crossroads. And I actually, I had two decisions to make. Um, um, I, the, I had been offered an actor teacher position at creative arts team. I can't, I think it was actor teacher could have been a, I, I can't remember, but I remember the group audition that, like you just described. And at that time, Chris Vine was had just come into the creative arts team, and he was another big mentor to me through the study abroad program. Um, after that shift in program, when he came on board, mm -hmm. um, but I also the same time, it was so funny. Got this funny fax from Ireland that went to the wrong office in the NYU building and somehow found its way down to Ed Theater to my mailbox um, from Graffiti Theater Company in Cork offering me a gig on their spring production to run to be a workshop director and facilitator and I remember thinking oh my god I've been looking for a job for so long now there are two mm. what am I going to do um, and it was, it was kind of heartbreaking. And I, I remember going to Nancy with it and she, she just said to me, Edie, a dissertation is not a holiday in Ireland. 
what you can't see is the cigarette. <laughs> um, and, you know, by that time, I had been in New York for a number of years. It was all the classic New York freelance things of pay, trying to pay rent, trying to do this, trying to figure, you know, where I fit in this ecosystem of arts education. Um, and Ireland looked pretty good, mm -hmm. so I chose Cork. And Did, that was the next sort of big decision mm -hmm. that had a domino effect in the rest of my life. Yeah, I'm, I, we're going to get there. But did you have a prior relationship with graffiti? Like, yes, did, okay. graffiti came. Um, someone, I don't remember in the, in the lore of NYU and study abroad, who put graffiti and Emily mm -hmm. on Emily Fitzgibbon on, sorry, on Nancy's radar. Mm -hmm. It might have been Cecily O'Neill. I can't quite remember. And I, and I don't think I was on study abroad the summer that Emily Fitzgibbon did her first sort of input workshop as a drama person. But I think that's how it happened. And something like that happened. And Nancy and Emily started talking about Emily's theater company and her theater direction. And um, Emily told Nancy about the show that they had Oh my gosh, can I remember? In, called Infidel. And Nancy was very taken with the pitch, the concept of the show, mm -hmm. and, and found some money later when she got back to New York and brought it over the following spring. And I, I was finishing up my fellowship, mm -hmm. and that my job that spring was sort of project production managing their residency. Okay, <clears throat> And it was a real eye-opening moment for me because, uh, well, one, I just really hit it off with Emily. But I also, the show, and I, I was looking for a dissertation topic then. And the show um, was, a, was proof of concept to me that you could marry professional theater and process drama and something interesting would happen and because for so long um the the reason why i think chris vine was such so influential for me when when greenwich young people's theater came into the study abroad mix mm -hmm. and i did i think i can't remember exactly but i think i i got two summers with them um and one of them was sort of like advanced tie and um and we made a mini show in, in production teams. Um, I was, I really wanted, it was the next time I, I remember now looking back, consciously knowing I, uh, this is the next thing I want to explore, which was, was that kind of professional theater work that blurs the boundaries between audience and performer mm -hmm. um, and was okay with having... Um, an educational idea or a question at the heart of it, not not a teaching play, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but a mode of inquiry mm -hmm. that was embedded in the fictional world. And I really wanted to do more of that. And so when graffiti came with Infidel, I saw another example of that way of working. And um, 
and 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 so that was how I was introduced to Emily and the company. Mm-hmm. And so this offer, you hadn't applied for it, or, or no, no, you know, we I had sort of bonded with the company. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a company from another country in New York in the spring, and you know, it was my job to spend time with them and take care of them. And it, it was like it was a, it, you know, it was a all male company of Irish actors and Emily and we just all had a really good time together mm-hmm. and um it was a great play and actually the the playwright Roger Gregg is an American who's who's emigrated to to um Ireland and also it, it was a really it would be a great play to look at again uh, in this time that we're in mm. it it was set during the time of the crusades and it was a a very intense drama um, about um, the culture clash between English crusaders and or Western crusaders and a uh, Middle Eastern Muslim prince, and um, and a and a kind of the 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 transformation and moments of understanding that came when they find found discovered there was common ground between their worlds and um and I just thought yeah I mean why aren't we having these conversations with kids Mm -hmm. um that show came to New York I think I'm not going to remember the dates but it must have been at least a year if not two after the first Mm -hmm. terrorism episode at the World Trade Center it was 1998 I believe was it ninety eight? Oh, then maybe it predated. Would it predated it then? I could be wrong. Oh, uh, maybe it was ninety three. Does that does that ninety three would have been yeah. right for it to have no, come no, before I this show? I just I don't yeah. remember. Yeah. Oh, it must have been ninety three because yeah. I was in New York when it happened. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So and I I don't remember when when Rodney King happened either but it was yeah so there were there were these culture clashes that were happening around us and you know the after the Rodney King verdict um, when the rioting happened we were supposed to have a show in Washington Square at NYU and it was canceled Um, so you know we had had this series of things of, of of violence erupting so it was not a dissimilar time and um, and I just thought this is such proof that that you can bring this work to kids. So I, I, again, I, I want to get to graffiti, but and your experiences there. But I just want to like look at that so that pivot point because mm-hmm. I feel like you've had many pivot, pivot yes. points, right? Um, and I think that a lot of times people who are in this field, I mean, this is called teaching artistry, right? So we haven't really gotten too deep into that, which we will, not a problem. But <laughs> but I, I've had similar moments where I have this choice or that choice to make, and how you know what what is it that makes us make a one you know choose something over another thing is it is it what you you know nancy's advice you know this is not a vacation this is hard work Mm -hmm. and or oh you know this is something that is i guess um you know some of us make decisions about our careers because it's a career as opposed to what's going on in our heart and what we're passionate about and i always especially because of my my early days um, as an adult and making choices 
making fra- uh, fragmented choices for where I was working as opposed to being super intentional all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, and then getting to a place where there's a fork in a road and you have to make a choice and choose your heart. The rest will follow kind mm-hmm. of situation. And so, you know, as you're talking, I'm hearing that sort of ringing in my head and that's a big decision to move to a whole new the con- other country. And even though, yes, you had a camaraderie with this group at one point or earlier, but what what like were, were the conversations that you were having with your family around this or I was anybody saying no you shouldn't do no this? my fa- I'm really lucky my family yeah. really encouraged me I think if they'd known at the time that I was go I was going for I went for a four month gig and I you know I stayed for over seven years so I think they if they'd known that at the time they right. might have felt differently <laughs> um but um they were really supportive and excited for me they thought it was a great opportunity um the heart the 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 heartbreaking thing for me was that i and again i I wouldn't have explained it this way at the time but i had two um opportunities that felt like they were serving my heart Mm. you know and um you know chris Chris Vine is a is another tremendous teacher and a tremendous artist. And I had learned a lot from him and I felt the burden of letting him down, especially as he was coming into a new role at the creative arts team, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I, I thought about that, although he didn't put that on me at all. He was very encouraging also. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, again, with the benefit of hindsight, I um I was following a new passion and a new curiosity, which was to find out more about um, theater making in a in an equity company touring context mm-hmm. to, for kids. And um, I knew about kids as, I mean, not everything, but I knew something about kids as learners in the formal school context I'd been working in that way and although the opportunity with cat would have would have been transformational I'm sure in in new ways as well mm-hmm. I'd I'd been in New York City schools I'd been working with New York City kids in a very um, directly educational classroom focused way And this was an opportunity to learn more about the art form, to start to develop more as an artist Mm -hmm. working um, in a process mode. And again, if I'd known about the term teaching artist at the time, I think I would have been able to think of it, to frame it that way. Mm -hmm. What I know now is that by learning more about the art form and the craft and how audiences engage with it, it made me a better teaching artist. It made me a better facilitator. It made me able to work within the form, to use the form, <laughs> um, to teach whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's, I think, what I had, um, uh, and, and again, an instinct and a definitely a passion for um, but I didn't quite realize that was the thing that was driving me to Ireland. Mm-hmm. So you, you took a four-month gig. Yes. Stayed for seven years. Yes. <laughs> uh, so what happened after the first project was complete? and Or what happened, period? <clears throat> well, I just, I kind of, I found a new home and a new community. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and a new way of sort of being in the world and of being a professional and figuring out what that meant. So it was a like I, I, I had some um, opportunities as a freelancer, right? So I was working with graffiti um, and then and touring. And then I also, I needed to make a bit more money and was, just was curious about doing other things. So I also worked in a music pub at night and on the weekends as a bouncer. Um, but that was um, really a door, a money taker at the door. <laughs> okay. But but there, but you were mm-hmm. also responsible for like getting people out of there or not letting them in. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that opened up a whole new art form on live music. I mean, I'd always been interested in music. I was a DJ in college of in college radio, went to gigs, all of that. But this, you know, this was just adding another. Um, uh, sort of creative energy and a creative community to my life. And, you know, Ireland is really big on festivals. So there was all this other work. There were music festivals and art, all multidisciplinary festivals. And Cork had a film festival. That's how I first got into film. Um, and other companies and other things. And so I met a whole bunch of people. And, and there were actors and writers and designers who were visual artists. There's a, a college, uh, a visual art college in Cork. So there was all this interesting talent to draw on and be around. And, um, and people worked for all the different companies, whether it was graffiti for young people or other companies for, you know, ad- adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and, or you could work at venues w- around these festivals. And, um, and so I did like sort of backstage work for big concerts at the Cork Opera House and, uh, you know, like all just all kinds of stuff in arts and culture. Mm-hmm. And again, it was this thing of, you know, there's some arts admin and arts management in all of that. And, um, you know, and it was just it was just so rich and exciting. And the other cool thing that added this sort of formal dimension was, um, well, to back off from that for a second, I was in, I was lucky enough to be in Ireland during the Celtic Tiger time. So it was a real economic boom. And it was during the time when people were coming back and people wanted to immigrate there. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> and so there was just this hive of activity all the time. And um, so I, you know, I would, I got to work in Dublin. I did something, uh, had a freelance gig for the Dublin Theater Festival. I started to work for the National Theater for the Abbey and their education and outreach mm-hmm. program. So just things built. Mm-hmm. And through the Abbey, I had the opportunity to work as a teaching artist again, although that term didn't really exist there. Um, as a um with adults and doing education and outreach for adults and not just kids and that was really cool and then i did this collaboration with a choreographer um on a a a, a, a art making program for senior citizen women to make their own dances that were sort of life story dances and I'd never done that that was really cool so you know like just all these things start and I started to feel more confident about being able to work in all these different contexts and with different art forms Mm -hmm. and and different people and um, one of the things that occurred during that time was a lot of big um, education reform so drama went on the national curriculum while I was there and I got to be part of the curriculum writing teams so that was a whole next wave of um, kind of formalizing 
what I'd been learning and doing and practicing. And um, that was very exciting. And then <clears throat> the second year I was involved with the Cork Film Festival, Cor a film went on the national curriculum. Um, and I got to be involved in, in some of, of that work mm -hmm. and also figuring out how to program a festival for kids and families that um, sort of leverage this, this new frontier of, of, of film as a formal area of study. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, just, it was just a thrilling time. And it was a boom time artistically in Ireland. There were a lot of independent films that were um, making waves. When I was there, um, a film called Going Down was the first um, fully Irish independent production that made it onto uh, mainstream cinema marquees and held on for longer than a certain amount of time or had the biggest box office to date or some, something, some big threshold like right. that benchmark. And that was thrilling, and it was thrilling to be um, part of a festival for young people where they could celebrate a film, something that had never occurred to me, as an, certainly as an American, that um, had characters in it who sounded like them. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's the Irish version that we have here in this country of kids not seeing people that look like them on the stage, on mm -hmm. the screen, in the concert hall, in the art gallery, whatever it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that was an important, that was a, an important experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to program again another young <clears throat> Irish film as the opener for the kids program. It was in the Cork Opera House, which is a big deal. And it was four teenagers and giant screen, gi I forget how many seats. Um, and the film was called... Um, how to cheat on the leaving certificate and the leaving certificate in Ireland is like the big high pressure high stakes exam that you take mm. to figure out where you're going to go to college or for the colleges to figure out who they're going to take and um you know it was very controversial because I had the word cheat in it and there were all <laughs> these kinds of things and mm. it was funny and and really well made and it was made by quite a young filmmaker and um you know it was just it was exhilarating and um you know, I think now reflecting on it, it goes it goes back to what we were talking about about growing up in D.C. and 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 feeling like you belonged in these major institutions, mm -hmm. like to not only be invited to the Cork Opera House, but to be to come in there and see a film that was full of people that looked and sounded like you, dealing with a major life issue that was critical as well to you with this exam. Um, I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Right. Um, and so I'm not quite sure where I am in answering your questions. <laughs> well, no, I was, but I, that I, was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the, I guess that was the thing was, I, I think I was saying, you know, four months turned into seven right. years. What, what, what were you doing? And I didn't realize that you, you had been, um, you were on the team to write the drama, to write for the, the drama curriculum mm -hmm. or the film curriculum. I, I mean that's that echoes work that you've done here too, right? Right. right. Um, so so transition, right? That after seven years you made a choice, uh, but how did you get to the the choice? And obviously, I've talked about you a lot, so people will know this piece at least. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, actually, before I, we go there, I'm yeah. sorry. Um, I realize that I uh, you named him a, a couple different times, but if you can be a little bit more clear about who Chris Vine is, sure. 
Um, so, so Chris Fine is currently, I don't know exactly his current title. I think it's artistic director of the creative arts team. Yeah. Um, and, um, when I met him first, it was through the NYU program and study abroad, study abroad in London. And he was, I, I believe artistic director at Greenwich Young People's Theater, if not founder or co-founder, um, and I don't remember the story of how Nancy, when she changed the program, landed there and with this structure. Um, and I apologize. Um, but but um, I, again, it was like this light bulb moment when I uh, saw him teach and had the benefit of being in one of his classes. It was like, it just like, yeah, it was so validating uh, that someone else, a leader, had been successful and pioneering in um, creating theater, smart theater um, that was participatory, blurred the, you know, shattered the fourth wall, still was great theater, mm-hmm. and and asked important questions of kids and didn't talk down to them and I was like yes yes more please I want to learn how to do that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's great I I don't have I have a professional relationship with him but I've not been in his classes I obviously I have never worked for a creative arts team again not bitter um Mm -hmm. but I I I feel like anybody that I talk to who knows him has worked with him um, has such a high amount of respect for him. Um, and I do too, again, not necessarily having all the, uh, you know, the deeper kind of experience with him, but so many of my colleagues like Ben, um, my, my, my counterpart, Lindsay, uh, Buller Malieko, you know, they just speak mm-hmm. very, very highly of him. And, um, and Chris was also the mm-hmm. first person that I learned about theater of the oppressed and Augusto mm-hmm. Boal from, mm-hmm. um, so and and he was very different from Nancy in terms of his style of mentorship mm. um but i would say equally impactful on me um because there's something about him as a teacher as well as as an artist or a director um that he has that gift of making you feel when he's focused on you like you're the only person in the room and that this his encouragement is palpable and powerful um and goes a huge long at least for me went a huge long way in in me sort of being intentional thinking deeply and being hungry to learn and do more Mm -hmm. So speaking of learning and doing more, yes. so when did you come back to the, the States? I came back to the States in the summer of 2001. In the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what was the reason for returning? I, I was living in Dublin at that time. I had left Cork. I'd gone to Dublin to um, primarily I had an opportunity because of the film festival work that I had done for, I guess, about three years, three three festivals, um, I had met a number of Irish producers. And um, 
there was a new producing team who was interested in creating a slate of projects for um, kids and family audiences. And they asked me to come on board as a development executive to put that slate together. And I was really excited about it and, and um, identified a slate of projects for them. But in order to, to do all of that and to try to push the projects along, I needed to be in Dublin. So I was living in Dublin doing that. And I was still doing some work for the Abbey. In fact, it was during that time that I did this dance project with um, a senior women that I mentioned mm -hmm. and um and I just the work was very satisfying but I wasn't very happy in Dublin mm -hmm. and um didn't have the same community I had in Cork it was a different time you know several years had passed and and a, a lot of my closest friends had also moved on from Cork and were doing different things and um and and you know, again, it was this hot time in Ireland. Dublin was expensive. It was hard to find a decent place to live. Mm. Um, and I kind of had this light switch go off, like, if I'm going to live in kind of a ratty apartment and pay exorbitant <laughs> rent, I could be back in New York. Mm -hmm. Maybe mm -hmm. it's time. Mm -hmm. And um, and I thought, but, oh, God, like, I have this weird work history no one's going to understand it. I've been away from NYU so long. I mean, I was still in touch because by that time there had been several NYU study abroads in Ireland that I had been lucky enough to be part of. So it wasn't that distant, but I just couldn't figure out. I hadn't done a dissertation, so it's not like I was going back suddenly like being in a position to go on anybody's faculty. Right. Um, was that of interest to you to work in the university sector? I mean, may maybe it was a, certainly a possibility. I love teaching. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, th in that way, yes. Mm -hmm. um, but I just kind of didn't know. And it just felt so weird and awkward to try to go back. And mm -hmm. I sort of also felt like if I go back without a plan, does it seem like, and I didn't do the dissertation, does it, do I look like a failure? failure? Like mm -hmm. who's going to want me? So I was going through all this stuff, but I, I started kind of, um, you know, peeking at um online job listings and it's so crazy now but even that was like a new frontier that you mm -hmm. could job search that way and all of a sudden the new victory director of education job was in the um NIFA listing and I was like oh oh my god that's so weird that sounds like all the crazy freelance <laughs> gigs I've done in one place Thank you for listening to Episode 10, Act 1 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Boddy, Edie Dimas, The Sphere of Cultural Responsibility. Join us next time for Act 2. Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Boddy is edited by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. John O. Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org. Follow us on Twitter at TA underscore artistry. Like our page on Facebook. Listen to us on SoundCloud. Subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. 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 Let's